0: Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Uh, This week, I'm joined by my friend and my colleague and a longtime watcher of uh, the Russian far right, but also the war in Ukraine, Pierre Vaux. He uh, formerly was a senior analyst at the Interpreter Magazine, uh, which I founded in, mm, I want to say 2012. That's how far back this goes uh well before the first invasion of ukraine and the takeover of crimea uh pierre and i recently co-authored a report called vile bodies which is about uh the strange kind of consortium of uh, cult members uh, spooks and fascists who were really the vanguard of russia's first invasion of ukraine in 2014 um kind of a dramatist persona of characters you will now have heard of. Uh, Igor Girkin, who's become a leading gadfly of the prosecution of the current war. Uh, Stremusov, who was the deputy governor of Kherson, who recently bit it in a car crash uh, just before the withdrawal from Kherson several months ago. Um, Who else have we got? Uh, Olga Koligina, who's a probable GRU officer, who's turned up at various points along the timeline that we deal with uh crimea uh lugansk and now possibly even again in ukraine this time reinvented as a a medic (laughs) Um, but our report um you can read it at the free russia foundation and when i tweet it out i'll i'll send the relevant link but the real reason i wanted pierre on uh the show this week and apologies for the absence but i was traveling all of last week, in the midst of the, um, what shall we call it, a mutiny, a coup, a putsch, an insurrection led by Yevgeny Prigozhin and his Wagner operatives, uh, which culminated in their reaching from, I think, about 120 miles of Moscow after having taken the city of Rostov on Don, the headquarters of the Southern Military District, which is responsible for Russia's conduct of the war in the four quote unquote annexed oblasts of Ukraine. Uh, and everybody who, I mean, even amateurs are clearly wondering what the hell happened in Russia. Uh, was this a coup? Was this some kind of demonstration of uh, grievance and a protest against uh, the Ministry of Defense, particularly uh, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister himself, and the chief of the general staff, Alery Garasimov? Or was this something more serious? Was Prigozhin actually trying to foment or orchestrate a kind of regime change and where does this leave Putin and Russia and also what is the effect it will have in Ukraine uh sorry for the long-winded introduction Pierre Uh, it's great to have you on and I know you and I talk about this stuff offline all the time but the nature of this show is offline conversations taken online so first and foremost what is your read of what took place last week what happened what is Prigozhin playing at
1: um
0: hi so yeah, I would say
1: that based on the evidence that I saw and the work I've done with my colleagues at the Centre for Information Resilience in London, um, where we collected a huge amount of open source data over the course of the night and the following day, um, and in the aftermath as well, as this stuff continues to emerge, this was not demonstrative. This was genuine combat going on. Yeah. There was not only... Airstrikes on Wagner positions. We had multiple aircraft downed, shells flying. There's evidence of shelling, even striking civilian houses in the Voronezh Oblast. This was genuine combat going on. This isn't, you know, a sort of unopposed march of soldiers going up towards Moscow as a way to get people to take them seriously. Yeah. um and again, like to stress, this is all stuff that's been verified, geolocated. We worked out the exact aircraft types down to, you know, the sort of model from tail numbers or specific antennae sticking out to different bits of them. And what's also interesting, that the type of stuff that they've shot down is valuable, very valuable in a sort of tactical level equipment, which we electronic, yeah, electronic, electronic warfare gear. Warfare. Yeah. yeah. And also airborne command posts, which there aren't many of in the russian air force and you use those for coordinating response you know military action in an area yeah so value very high value assets um not at the strategic level but definitely at the tactical level being destroyed in combat
0: but when we say there was actual combat and clearly you know we're we're still Doing the postmortem on this thing, it is. It remains the case that you know this. There was not a state of emergency. You did not have the national guard. You didn't have conventional military units. You didn't see much of uh, Oman riot police, uh, FSB trying to interdict Wagner. I mean, they got pretty close to the capital, um, largely through what non-response.
1: There were reports of Roskvadia, like the equivalent of the Russian national guard. Well, it's actually the replacement to the old internal troops for suppressing dissent. They were supposedly deployed towards the border. The border security is managed by the FSB. Clearly, they didn't stop them, or they had orders not to engage in direct combat at that point. Um, we did see checkpoints with proper force being deployed on the River Orka um, near Serpukhov, so south, just south of Moscow. So it seemed that that river line where there's a few bridges and choke points, there's two main highways that come from the south there, and it seemed that that's where they really set up to deploy. Um, and I think from what I remember there, we would, it was definitely special forces units, but yes, they had serious forces deployed there in significant quantities to hold those choke points, and the Wagner Group never made it up there.
0: Right. And I mean, what, what do you reckon was the reason that Prigozhin decided to call the whole thing off coming within 200 miles of the Kremlin? Was it, I mean, one of the theories is that he sort of got ahead of himself uh, and, and lost control of his own operation and what had become, or what, what had started out as a mutiny became a possible revolution and he did not want to see himself in the cockpit of leading that revolution. So he decided, okay, with whatever kind of backstage orchestration was going on with Lukashenko to to cut a deal which would allow himself to survive and Wagner essentially to be dissolved or incorporated into uh, the regular army but from what you've described it sounds like this was something a little more concerted than he, he 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 lost the plot he he seemed to have a plot and it just uh it didn't succeed yeah yeah well i think
1: the interesting thing is that is whether or not he had, had anticipated on getting the support of certain people in the security structures. So there's lots of rumours going around about Surovikin as to whether or not he'd been on side or not, or had been persuaded at the last moment not to back him. Um, I think it's interesting that we didn't see, as you said, Roskvadia inter interdiction at the beginning, And were I to mount a coup in Russia, I would want to get Roskvadia, which is under the control of Viktor Zolotov, um, who's one of those interesting people who's been around forever. So he was Yeltsin's bodyguard in 91. You can see him on the photos in the tanks and wearing a Technicolor tracksuit during the 1993 siege at the White House. He's always been there. He's in charge of Roskvadia. He's quite close to both Ramzan Kadyrov and allegedly Rogozhin. Um, And they sort of form a little parallel security power structure to the MOD. Maybe he thought he'd get Zolotov, Surovikin to back him up. And then due to circumstances, I don't quite, you know, I have no way of knowing. It's a black box. I'm not going to speculate. Whatever happened, he didn't get the support he might have anticipated. Um, I mean, we saw in Rostov-Nadonu, we saw him having meetings with two negotiators, both from the MOD and the GRU, well, GRU is within MOD, but, you know, it's its own power, really. Um, so you had Alexeyev, um, deputy head of the uh, GRU, and you had Yunus Bekyukurov, um who's a deputy minister of defense and former pre- head, not president, is the word head of Ingushetia. um, who's definitely been used to a lot of high pressure negotiations and delicate situations like that dealing with you know he was the one that they wanted called in at the time of bezlan for example
0: they have is an, another interesting case because he's deputy director of the GRU uh rumored at one point to have been earmarked for promotion to full director but from various scandals including those unearthed by kristo at bellencat his his career was was top but this this scene where He's liaising or, or trying to persuade Prigozhin to do I don't even know what. There, there's this offhanded comment where he's like, oh, <laughs> if you're going, why don't you take Shoigu and Gerasimov? Gerasimov is, is Alexeyev's nominal technical boss. The GRU answers to the, the the general staff before it even gets anywhere near the Kremlin, although there might be different lines of communication now, given the GRU's rather robust role in international uh, you know, sabotage and assassination plots, but um, it, it sort of looked like the deputy director of, of Russian military intelligence was egging Prigozhin on, not trying to rein him in.
1: I'm not certain about that. So their their conversation was not very friendly, um, and it's most of it is most of it is Yakurov speaking with him. You Alexeyev is sort of saying over you know, why don't why are you standing down? Why are you here? I think that was one implication of why have you taken command of a major military command post, which is critical to the war in Ukraine? Because operations in Ukraine, southern military district, the center in Rostov-on-Don is incredibly important for commanding those and has been since the Donbass war broke out in 2014. Yekurov pisses Prigozhin off at one point. Prigozhin thinks he's talking to him in the tui form, uh, like the informal two form. And starts saying, why are you calling me? And, you know, I'm speaking to you in uh, addressing you formally. Why are you talking like this? And Yukurov denies he's doing it. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not friendly. It's po- the staging and the positions are like, I think they're trying to sort of talk him down, but it's, it's not a friendly chat. And Purgosian is like surprisingly brittle, considering he's the one trying to sort of mount a code. He's getting upset about, You know, vu versus two forms.
0: But Wagner, I mean, as we know and as we've written in our report, I mean, its relationship with the GRU is pretty undeniable, right? I mean, its main base in Krasnodar is right next door to a GRU Spetsnaz facility. Um, You know, Utkin, the commander of Wagner, is himself former GRU, serially decorated with the Order of Courage. Uh, They've recruited a lot of former GRU special forces operators over the years.
1: And their operations in Madagascar and the Central African Republic were coordinated directly with on the ground a GRU guy,
0: right? So I, I, I'm just again, I we I don't want to. Well, I guess I do want to speculate a little bit. So if we're going to put, I think, a very persuasive case that Prigozhin launched this operation, uh, hoping or if if not hoping, then actually having made preparations to recruit assets within the special services and the security structure of Russia, it doesn't really make any sense for him not to have tried to get the GRU or at least some elements within the GRU on site, right? Yeah, uh, I, I would assume there are elements. And, and the tetchiness that you described between uh, him and Alexeyev... Oh, it's with Yakurov. Well, also Alexeyev saying why are you here? I mean, so in other words, if you're going to do this, or if, if we have agreed you're going to do this, why take this facility when you should be doing something that would further your aim to... Capture the state. In other words, Prigozhin might have gone off script, if they're assuming there was a script to begin with.
1: Yeah, I'm hesitant to read that much into it. Um, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to get into speculating on that. One thing that I think is not clear. Okay, so we know there's genuine combat, but I don't know if it's clear that this is a coup to actually, you know, a coup d'état to decapitate the actual leadership, as in Putin. I don't. Know that. And I have a feeling that all of the language that Prigozhin was using in advance of it, all of the sort of rhetoric, especially that big video we'd done the morning before, still makes me feel like he maybe wanted to present a fait accompli where it was, you know, like, oh, okay, look, the MOD leadership is challenged. Now the good czar has to do the sort of bad boyar move and replace the entire leadership and accept Prigozhin as his sort of new mercenary chief command of the armed forces or something and give ground to him i don't know if he was actually going to or you know putin would fall ill and has been misled and he's gravely ill and has to be insulated from these negative outside influences but that's entire speculation but i i can't i don't see i don't see evidence he was going to try and like proclaim himself president or anything like that
0: so, but let's talk then about what is now taking place uh, in terms of, of Wagner's disintegration or co-optation by the state. Um, just today, I saw that they're removing the the Wagner letters on the main headquarters in St. Petersburg. Um, the uh, it, it seems as if Wagner's sort of foreign expeditionary teams have been instructed that there's a new sheriff in town. They no longer answer to pedagogian in Syria. I forget who it was who was sent to Damascus to liaise with Assad, saying the Wagner guys here are now going to fall under the command of MOD. And evidently, all of the operatives complied. And they they got into cars and drove to uh, the, the Kemenim Air Base in Latakia for, I guess, new tasking or whatever. Um, where do you see this going? I mean, we've, we've done a lot of work together, not just on wagner mercenary activities in libya ukraine syria but also on the broader prigozhin empire which consists of i mean obviously the the former internet research agency slash troll farm but political consultancy on steroids right government in a box style what the russians would call political technology to essentially install um through elections but also fake election monitoring mechanisms pliant clients in several different states, particularly uh, sub-Saharan Africa, right? Um, Prigozhin has done this clearly with an eye toward increasing his own cachet and influence in Russia, but also with a money-making agenda. Um, You know, mining rights, acting as an intermediary, uh, funnily enough, from the Russian Ministry of Defense with ministries of defenses in Africa to do weapons contracts, arms deals, you name it. Where does all this go now? Is this going to be gobbled up by Shoigu's Ministry of Defense, or and and can we expect the Prigozhin Empire middle cadres to just fall in line here, or is there going to be an outward rebellion? Is there going to be people saying, "That's it, I'm done. I'd rather go cool my heels in a hotel in Minsk with with my with my boss." Uh, where what do you what do you see this having in terms of international repercussions?
1: The thing is, at the moment, it's actually I'm not entirely certain. There's contradicting evidence as to whether or not Wagner is actually being rolled up. So Sarah Rainsford at the BBC said that they the BBC rang the recruitment centres for the Wagner group in several sort of more provincial cities in Russia, and they were told, "No, we're still taking people. We're still recruiting people to sign contracts with the Wagner group."
0: But you can you can recruit people for something still called the Wagner Group with the understanding that it's going to be under new management. Yes,
1: but the branding, like you say, like it's there's a state of flux right now. There's also interesting sort of repro, you know, being reproached. So, in Central African Republic, the minister, minister, I think it was defense minister, said that um, you know will we'll accept. We, we're we happy to continue working with the Russians, whether or not they call themselves musicanti, as in Wagner musicians, or any other group. We'll keep working with them. It's all the same to us, basically. Uh, we like the Russians. We'll, we don't care who's in charge. Ria, um, Ria Fan, Federal News Agency, which is Progozhin's thing, has run out of the same office as the Troll Farm, then ran a story saying that actually he'd apologised for besmirching the Wagner group. And, you know, the thing is, I don't want to say speak too concretely on this because sadly I've not had as much time to dedicate to this sort of response bit um, due to doing a sort of a lot of work on a rapid response to the Kramatorsk strike the other day. But I've not yet seen a clear line emerge from the sort of the external apparatus and the sort of you know things like Afik Media. Um, I saw Luc Michel, um, was one of their sort of big media partners in Africa, note you know, acknowledged it and talked about it it's like, oh, a state of flux, maybe a Western, you know, a Western provocation or something. Who knows? Um, and I think that's like the easy way out, is to sort of embrace, oh, it's all information war, who knows? Um but we've not seen any like formal sharing. There was an interesting report the other day saying, like, oh, the Patriot Media Group is being dissolved. But the thing is, there is no single structure as a corporate registered entity that is the Patriot Media Group. So it's actually a network of several different companies. So it's very easy to say, you know, it appears on the branding of the websites and makes it look like a real thing. But there isn't, you know, a company called that. So it's, it's an in, it, like Falconer is an informal agglomeration of like Concord Management, all of these other bits. But there's no one company.
0: I mean, is there a scenario in which, you know, there's been reporting that Prigozhin actually flew back from Belarus to possibly Petersburg or Moscow for negotiations? Is there a scenario in which he sits in exile in Minsk, still technically the director of all of these different entities and this empire, Um, But with a virtual gun to his head that you will now take instruction from MOD and whatever mild or semi autonomy we have granted you is now revoked. And you're going to continue to act as the liaison between Moscow and Wagner, but without the ability to make decisions on your own. Um, And if you go off script, that virtual gun becomes a real one. And that's it, Uh, because that that given how easy it is now to sort of see wild and hitherto you know unfathomable scenarios play out in russia that's not something that strikes me as completely impossible
1: so far we've not seen those company registration changes happening yet obviously bear in mind, he's not named as a director on most of these companies um you know often it will be like oh okay we work out this is related to it because they even they've got shares or a co-director with this company and this company and then ultimately they also share a phone number with concord management in terms of whether or not he can keep doing that with a gun to his head, again, this is like, it's black box stuff. And it also becomes a bit of a sort of Descartes, Cartesian demon kind of thing. Like, we don't know if he is being, you know, there, there can always be a gun at your head in this kind of circle.
0: He's a He is a, a, a perennial threat so long as he draws breath to this regime, right? I mean, he managed to do something quite bold and quite successful until it wasn't. Um, he's got, I mean, we, we don't know the, the exact numbers for Wagner, you know, some people will say 25,000, a lot of people will say, actually that's way over estimated, but he still has, let us say tens of thousands of willing, well-compensated. Yeah. But
1: I mean, what I'd say is interesting yeah. is that, you know, there's been a real flourishing in the number of public PMCs announced it over the course of the full-scale invasion, You know, whereas previously it was like the Russian government would deny there's any such thing as a private military company operating under the name of Wagner. It's got nothing to do with us, all this stuff. Then he became public. And now you've got to the point where you've got Gazprom and Roscosmos running their own PMCs. Everyone has one now. They're completely masked off in this sense. But a lot of these PMC structures are overlap in personnel significantly with Wagner, like for example the um, convoy the one offici- nominally headed by um, Goblin Akcionov in Crimea all of their lead trainers, and this was something they admitted you know, in interviews, are Wagner people like, or ex-Wagner people now if you've got this kind of enormous spread of your I'm assuming if you end up being a trainer for another like very close to russian government project like uksyonov's mercenary group you're quite you have probably been in wagner for a long time you've risen up through the ranks and you've got this cadre of people who have probably got some esprit de corps for the group now spread around and in leadership positions at all these other little merc groups that you set it's
0: up also, it's also a convenient way for someone like a Prigozhin to reduplicate his efforts just under different banners or in different silos right i mean yeah
1: and the structures of these things i mean these things barely exist on paper It's just you know like the number of times that we saw with mobilized conscripts being told you're actually now in a pmc oh right okay which means you get more money but also you have fewer rights and we don't have to tell your family anything um and really strange stuff like Bibelov, the former head of South Ossetia, turning up and screaming at people when they've sort of refused to join one particular PMC structure and being shoved into another. In Luhansk, or I think it was Luhansk or Donetsk. I can't remember. But yeah, there's this, it's reached a point of these bizarre sort of completely virtual structures which are still just cannon fodder shoving mobilised or convicts around in large chunks on the battlefield um that's that's kind of the problem is that wagner isn't a single cohesive group look at the okay look at the air structure stuff you know prigozhin himself has even made a big thing of like that thing where he flew in a suhoi 24 bomber and challenged Zelensky to a dogfight. you know while flying at night over the donbass obviously probably not the donbass it's probably southern russia if it was real at all um but Wagner don't own air bases. So, Wagner, you have pilots who are either senior officers who have reached a desk jockey position and they're bored or they're just retired, who are then flying on Wagner-signed contracts on aircraft that are, you know, they're Russian Air Force aircraft operating from Russian Air Force air bases. But the pilot on board it has signed a contract as a way to sort of facilitate moving people around and attracting them back into a combat role.
0: This gets back to the core issue, right? Um, which is if you consider Wagner now an insurrection an insurrectionary force in Russia, or if dare I say even a fifth column, allowing them to continue business as usual, putting Wagner loyal and contracted pilots into the cockpits of Sukhoi bomber jets is insane. Well except,
1: but there's not really any it's not loyal though, because I mean, if you're a pilot in that structure, like it probably doesn't amount to anything except to change in your paperwork. Because you're going to be operating and living on a base with VKS people, you're not going to be living, you know, with at the camp with the other Wagner people. You probably never met a Wagner person, you probably just signed a piece of paper that says you're that. Um, and I think the same, you know, even for the base in Libya as well, like, yeah, the security itself on the ground might be Wagner, and clearly. And this is interesting, actually, because this was something that was always uncertain. Clearly, they do man their own SAMs, like the Panzer systems, because that's what they were using, the Panseers and Strellas to shoot down. Um, although that's because these like organic components that are going to be within their ground units, they're going to want to have mobile SAMs operating within that.
0: But even even accepting then, you know, aircraft to one side, like they're still capable, they still have the kit that's been provided to them by the government or by the Ministry of Defense. And they still have shown a willingness to use that kit against conventional forces, both land-based and air-based. I mean, keeping them in place without some kind of, you know, changing change of, of mentality or change of uh, esprit de corps. I mean, because, you know, the Ukrainians, for instance, have done these kind of I don't want to say too much here, but they've done their own sociological surveys of Russian uh, elements, both within the regular military uh, command and the irregular. So the PMCs, Wagner especially. And they have found that all of the Wagner guys um, completely hold in disdain and contempt MOD soldiers. They're very, very fanatically loyal to Batya, by whom they mean Prigozhin. Ah, uh, they think that everybody else is is an idiot and a mug who's not being paid properly, whose family will receive no sense of of glory or nobility in the sacrifice of their their children uh, or husbands or brothers. Um, and the Wagner, yeah, I mean they they see themselves as the only game in town in terms of combat, not just Ukraine but elsewhere. So well, and just... their
1: core cool founding group is far right as well, and it's yep. the ultra-nationalist
0: group, which hangs which has a lot of overlap with things oh. like Russian Imperial Movement. Exactly. And that was going to be my segue into our report, but you've you've
1: I, I was going to say with Russian beyond. and remember. Yep. Although Russian Imperial Movement are tools of the state, they're endorsed by the state, actually like they are now. They fight in the Wagner group, they used in military forces, so they get given state TV time even quite recently. And like local authorities would give them their blessing, their actual public rhetoric is very anti-Putin. They're extremely anti-Putin. Um, they see it. They see the current government structures as merely a continuation of the evil Bolshevik state, which they're opposed to. And, of course, they would use the word Bolshevik, because they're obviously raging anti-Semites.
0: Well, exactly, but it's it's not the first time in history, and in, in Russia's, it's not the exclusive domain of Russia to use extremist elements who would devour you first against your common enemy, right? Look at
1: Russian volunteer corps.
0: Look at Middle East autocracies, which have been instrumentalizing Islamist jihadists for decades. Um, Fight over there, don't fight here. Uh, So yeah, that makes sense. But again, we come back to this central issue of wither Wagner, what are you going to do? It's not just a matter of changing the paperwork or the signature on paperwork there's a an inculcated sense of of purpose and a, an ideological motivation at least for some of these guys maybe the pilots accepted that is going to be very very hard to dislodge right well, it's i
1: mean that's where that that ideological core bit though is where it's potentially quite interesting as a split because among the russian sort of in, okay among the russian far right i think there is a bit of a split in terms of responses to this and I think you've got someone like Gierkin who has the interesting position of simultaneously representing a good chunk of the imperialist constituency, but also being an FSB officer, um, saying that this is, you know, treason. He should be hanged publicly. This is like absolutely unacceptable. And I think the problem is that the way he positioned himself vis-a-vis the war being futile, and there being, is not such a popular thing amongst the imperialist types because this is seen as giving sucker to the enemy at a critical time so i think the way he chose to
0: sort of use a popular and i, I want to make it clear by the way because there was some bad unless you can sell that argument as the reason the war is futile is because the people who are in charge of it are our are our primary enemy so, the world war is an outcropping of the domestic crisis that we face. We need to overthrow this regime and one that's more like minded before we go to war in Ukraine. That kind of makes sense to me. That's something. Yeah. That I I, I want like. to make it
1: very clear as well, because there was some, there were a lot of like, you know, non Russian speaking. Um, Twitter accounts that, you know, people follow for information on the war that were saying, like, oh, uh, Prigozhin said Ukraine never bombed civilians. He never said that. I've watched that video multiple times. He never said that. He said, they fire on us, we fire on them. That went on for eight years. There was no change happening in February 2022 in order to justify the invasion. He never said, oh, Ukraine didn't fire on civilians or anything. Like, he's not come out as, like, some pinko liberal um who feels bad about the war because of its you know imperialist causes and he doesn't um suddenly deny the sort of russian historiography of ukraine you know f- attacking
0: russian speakers he did undermine the pretext he undermined
1: the cause the claim of necessity but he carefully didn't say you know you know he didn't actually say that
0: no, but sure, and, uh, nobody nobody suggests serious – well, maybe some people who have opportunistically decided that Prigozhin is now the savior of not just Ukraine but also Russia have deci- have chosen him as this kind of like reinvented liberal, which he's not. But if you're going to say that this whole claim that Kyiv is run by a neo-Nazi junta was bullshit and we went in because we went in for imperial conquest, however – Again, who no, he didn't this, say that. He didn't say it's not a neo-Nazi junta either. But he doesn't quite refer to them as fascists. He doesn't use the language of the MOD to characterize them. They're always the enemy. He does accord the Ukrainian side some kind of martial dignity, which they themselves. Yeah, that's been, been an interesting shift. I think yeah. that was something that. Because that's a compliment that they repay to him. I mean, Budanov, the head of military intelligence in Ukraine has and 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 to me i read this as kind of its own psyop right like let's i see it as damage uh, limitation
1: like the reason okay if you look at the timing of when he suddenly did his big visit to the front and all we're going to hand over the ukrainian dead and we're going to make you know this is respect you know that was uh, shortly after the first you know like reports of a beheading video had surfaced and gone around And, like, it was, like, I think it's damage limitation because he knew that, you know, at least some troops affiliated to his unit had conducted some vile shit that was going to get out. And he wanted to sort of, like, you look at the way he's made a very concerted effort to distance himself from treatment of POWs in the same way that he treats his own soldiers. Like, he's completely happy embracing the image of, um, you know, sledgehammering, their own returnees. Um, I mean, that's typically Soviet as well in terms of like treating your own returning sort of prisoners worse than the enemy. Um, he was perfectly, they've clearly had no trouble embracing the, um, Syrian atrocities that they did there. But with the Ukrainians, because the thing is you, no one in Syria or the central African Republic is taking Wagner prisoners hostage and, you know, holding them in POW camps, you know, for exchanges. That is happening with Ukraine. They don't want to incite them to treat them in that manner. He's got a vested interest in trying to appear more rational. So I I, I agree that like I think there is that kind of playing off it. Obviously, there are the root you know, there is the Texera document stuff about whether or not Ukrainian intelligence had been in communications. Or not. I mean, assume he's a perfect mark. Yeah. Someone whose interest is venal. And financial, rather than patriotic, makes them a perfect target for someone to try and say, "Well, how much do you want to live after the you know next two years?"
0: Already has this sort of boiling hostility toward the people who are in positions of command to determine the outcome of the war or the, the the course it would take from the Russian side, right? I mean, you know, you and 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 honestly, one of the reasons now I think retrospectively, the decision was taken by all of Ukraine's uh, war cabinet to, to fight and defend Bakhmut was exactly to kind of exacerbate these contradictions between Prigozhin and Wagner on the one hand, and the MOD on the other, because that's when it really started to to boil over, right? When he was, you know, Shoygu Grasmov, where's the fucking ammunition, all of those sort of ranting, frothing videos. It was all about Bakhmut, because Wagner has, has, has taken, I don't even know what the latest estimate is. I mean, Zelensky today, I think, said 20,000 uh, killed and then tens thousands more, tens of thousands more wounded, just from Wagner in Bakhmut. Right now, assuming it's that the reality is maybe a fraction of that, it's still, it's massive losses. I mean, the diet. visual
1: evidence indicates, you know, like quite day easily hundreds per day. Right. I mean, right. like it's it's shocking the drone footage from there in terms of the number of corpses that were piled up at the height of that battle.
0: Right, so I mean, um, just from a, a kind of mass psychological point of view, you know, you're, you you sign these contracts, you have a history, either you're a convicted felon or criminal who's been let out of prison, uh, or you've got a history of violence and criminality in your past. I mean, I did that big investigation with consortium partners about who's actually joining Wagner, and even from just the side from Moldova, from Ukraine, countries we had access to, we found these are all peasants. They're all people who have no prospect for upward mobility. They're ill-educated. They've come from violent households. They have committed violence themselves. They've gone to prison. This is the most money they've ever seen in their lives, and they're willing to do things. I mean, they are sociopaths, uh, and they're willing to act in a sociopathic manner. So you're throwing all of this into this meat grinder for a city that really means fuck all in the grand scheme scheme of things. You're, You're dying by the droves. You're paying these guys a king's ransom in comparison to what they'd make as as contract or conscription soldiers, and then you 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 know you you feel like you could do a better job of leading this war because look at what you've done with this this vanguard force. It makes sense, you know. Yeah, I
1: mean, look at um, and in terms of what you're saying about the criminality in the background, I also remember the Denis Korotkov piece, the very first one on the uh, Slavonic Corps back in October 2013. And one of the things that he he noted in the profiles and the interviews of the the survivors of that was these were people who were basically militarily institutionalized in the wars in the 90s, in the caucus and stuff and had not been able. And there's this like nice little illusion. It's like they didn't readjust to civilian life. What does that mean? Um, It means that, you know, they're probably, you know, PTSD or like, you know, so, you know, antisocial behavior, to put it mildly. Again, that's the kind of people
0: that you feed into this. You want people who've got military experience and violent. Yeah, it's 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 sort of Locker meets American psycho. That's who these people are, right? They can't they can't thrive, they cannot exist outside of a combat zone, but they want to put all of their, their skill set and their I mean that's Gierkin as well. That's what Geerkin
1: described. Um like he he literally said that. Um and i mean i would the only thing i would push back on a little bit is this at the notion that bakhmut is strategically insignificant because if bakhmut falls it leaves kramatorsk and slovyansk very exposed and there isn't much of a natural boundary of any form to you know beyond that having them at a choke point because there's is actually it is actually quite important and also the sort of I know that those two towns aren't, you know, capital regions or anything. It's not like trying to take Zaporizhia or something, which the Russians would love, but obviously never got anywhere near doing. But those two have huge sort of symbolic significance because they were the centers of the Sakhnozovame separatist um, uprising in 2014. Slovyansk, in particular, but Kramatorsk was also taken. If those fall, that would be seen. that would be almost a point you could imagine in a sort of a minimalist state Putin being accepting of like oh look we've restored the DNR Donetsk People's Republic back to its original form.
0: Well, yes, but all of the Western military analysts thought withdraw from Bakhmut and then fortify you know the defensive flanks there, which is essentially kind of what what has happened, right? I mean, Bakhmut did fall, uh, and yet but the
1: line's Bakhmut not gone beyond it, Bakhmut
0: so bakhmut bakhmut doesn't exist anymore and there is a line on the, the edge and the northern of it. and southern flanks are increasingly being encroached upon by the ukrainians who to all outward appearances now seem to be diverting resources a bit from the south or focusing more of their efforts in the east than on the south i wanted to ask you about this too so you you study not just the russian and ukrainian far right and sort of all of this skullduggery but also the war the TikTok of the war itself um the reporting coming out now among American journalists is this thing is going sideways or it's taking too long. Zaluzhny gave a big interview to the Washington Post where he said he's pissed off hearing armchair generals in the West tell him how to fight a war that he is very au fait with and knows his enemy a lot better than than we do. Um, Bill Burns took this secret trip to Kiev, came back. The Washington Post did a, another story suggesting that some Ukrainian officials, although they remain unnamed and obscure are are thinking that um actually their prospects are quite good for retaking a large amount of territory in the east uh in particular by the fall at which point they will then try to negotiate with moscow for the first time in a year over a year uh point their guns and their tanks at the very lip of occupied crimea but not actually go over the line to try and reclaim it which goes against the stuff i was hearing eight weeks ago when i was in kiev um and then try to sue for some kind of permanent settlement. Let, let's start with the TikTok of the counteroffensive. Where do you see things now? And is it true that this is ground to a halt, that it's it's not going well, or is it more true to say, as per the Ukrainian perspective, well, hang on a minute. We've been probing, we've been trying to see where the weaknesses are in the Russian defensive lines. We have not committed, you know, the nine NATO-trained brigades or the bulk of our Uh, military assets, including reserves into really pushing forward. Um, And that, you know, actually, we are making gains. And one of the things I've noticed, in particular, in the last couple of weeks is settlements or villages that are, are announced as retaken by Ukraine, were retaken a week before and Hannah Maliar, one of the spokesmen for the or uh, Ministry of Defense, a deputy defense minister, in fact, said the reason we don't announce it in real time is for quote tactical consideration. So there's an operational security kind of uh, effect here where we don't hear about things that are happening until well after the fact. What do you what do you see as as the current state of play?
1: I'm going to have to disappoint you a bit by saying I've not been looking at the southern front at all, um, just because I mean my job is primarily war crimes investigation so it's retrospective a lot of it is historical the satellite imagery time because we you know tasking satellites and stuff and looking at data we're not directing that to look at ukrainian offensive positions like that's not the info you know the interest in that is what is russia doing to ukraine verifying it proving it making you know building stuff for legal cases and stuff it's not we have no interest in researching or documenting, slash, you know, exposing Ukrainian military positions and where they are. That's not that's not what me or any of my colleagues are doing. to Put it bluntly, in terms of what I've been aware of. I mean, there, there's some interesting movement going on west of Donetsk. Um, and I think that's a flank that's an area of the front that I don't think has received as much attention and it's quite interesting is that um partly so there's been movement around the town of Krasnaharivka, which is next to starachhnetivka, so just west um north of Mariinka. and that's that's interesting because this the any movement there fascinates me because that's where the front line has been static for eight years and it's incredibly entrenched. And if they're actually in a position there at like endangering the city of Donetsk, that's quite intriguing. <laughs> I would say, I mean, also the ferocity of the fighting there, since over the course of this full-scale invasion, has been spectacular and has not received much attention at all. So Mariinka, which was a Ukrainian-held suburb um, on right on the edge of Donetsk city, um, there was always you know shelling going in and out, but people lived there it no longer exists. And when I say that, I don't mean even like Mariupol. It's this level of destruction there is, it's gone. It's when you look at satellite images and there's not even walls of buildings. It's smooth, flat. It's been completely, utterly destroyed with incendiary weapons and constant shelling. Um, So I feel like there's if there is, and there's certainly being claimed, I've not, for terms of my open source evidence on that side of it, just I would, this was again, this isn't really my job, even. This is just me looking at my personal interest. Definitely reports of like constant combat in those villages. If they are making it through there, that's really interesting because that's a huge achievement, even though it's minor in terms of distance. But breaking through those entrenched front lines is the sort of thing where you could then get a major shift afterwards. But I really don't want to speculate on that. Um, just to say that it's very interesting. It makes complete logical sense to, to withhold information until after the fact, but, yeah, it's just not my... Um, it's My job is primarily retrospective analysis or incident response when it's looking at, okay, this, this has happened, it's critically important, we need to cover it. The offensive is something that's for military intelligence, not for the sort of NGO sector I'm in.
0: Yeah, but you have an eye for tactical
1: yes but i've only got it i've only got two eyes i know i've only got two eyes though and i've been having to do most of it on sort of retrospective stuff and also looking so big stuff i've been working on this last week has been the wagner stuff and then the kramatorsk strike that's been most of my that's been my last week
0: well let's talk about the kramatorsk strike um you have you know sort of these uh tech bros on Twitter who have now reinvented themselves as Ukraine specialists suggesting that this was actually a Ukrainian storm shadow went, went gone awry. And it you mean, me. David Sachs. I mean, David Sachs. Yeah, About David Sachs. Is there nothing the man can't do? Um, no, well, I mean, who
1: actually likes venture capitalists or want to listen to them? I mean, it's like it's not exactly an appealing category of person.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting to me also like Mike Judge has proven to be kind of the Alexei de Tocqueville meets Mark Twain of American culture for the past 25 years. I mean, Idiocracy, office space, idiocracy, and Silicon Valley. If, only, if all you do is just watch those three TV shows slash movies, you'll have a better understanding of the degeneration of American society than anything no, else. I've not seen any of them. Okay. Well, you know what? I should have done my homework on you before I invited you. Yeah, invite that's him, all right. okay. Sorry, um, but no. Though, um, that, that's where you'll get your your West Coast venture capitalists, uh, tech bro element. But anyway, how do we know what like, happened? No one I'm wants about...
1: to listen to someone just because they've got a lot of money. Like that's that's an unappealing. category Oh no! In the on first the contrary,
0: place. people want to elect people who've got a lot of money to positions of controlling nuclear weapons. Oh, I mean, this is yeah. Maybe this is my. This is where my my Anglo-American friendships always come a cropper in in comparing and contrasting whose country's more fucked. I did it with John Sweeney Now I do it with you. At the moment, I think the UK is a neck ahead of the United States, but that can that can turn on a dime.
1: Economically,
0: yes, definitely by
1: a long way. Um we're definitely in a kind of deeply sclerotic stage where I mean you still make make things in America, so that's a big difference. Um yeah, the UK is not in a good state right now. Okay, on but to anyway, David cramateur. Sachs.
0: What, well, not on to David Sachs, uh, on to Kramators. So let's be serious. What happened and how do we know what happened?
1: What's happened is an American conspiracy theorist has fused several events. So the big strike on Central Kramators, so that happened was about 5.30 British Summer Time, so two hours ahead, 7.30 Kiev time. Um. And we can prove that. That's that's easy to say. You've got the first witness report saying they heard loud explosions at 29 past. And then the first videos appear shortly afterwards. And that was a strike in central Kramatorsk hitting a hotel and restaurant, a pizza restaurant called Ria Pizza. Um, the reason it was so busy is it's pretty much the only large restaurant open in the city. It's a city that is close to the front line but not on it it's distance to it so it's seen as you know the nearest semi-safe place to go it's actually been struck a fair few times you know the most awful one was in april last year where the russians conducted a cluster ballistic missile strike on a train station and killed a huge 50 something people um and that was one of the worst war crimes cases i've actually worked on in terms of the imagery but what they did What happened in Kramatorsk is that you end up with a place that's got a lot of people coming to it, and it's somewhere that you get huge numbers of journalists frequent this restaurant, loads of aid workers, um, locals, and also, yes, soldiers on leave or security personnel, Um, because you've got a country that's mobilised and its population, yes, there are going to be people who are soldiers there as well. In terms of this Russian claim that they hit a military base, I mean, there were three miners among the dead, and at least one eight month old baby severely wounded in it it's not that's not a military target and regardless of whether or not there were soldiers there that doesn't mean that you're justified in then you know striking a civilian target due to the presence of
0: do we know do we know what what munition the russians used I,
1: i'll explain why it's 100% where the storm shadow thing came from in a second because that's that's a, they've that's not even the russians are saying that actually that's two people getting their wires mixed on this. There were obviously also a lot of military personnel rushing to the scene afterwards, so you see that in there as well. But it's, yeah, I I feel it's like besides the point, the storm shadow thing. So back at around 12 BST, um, so 1,400 hours around then, key of time, there was an aircraft flew over Kramatorsk and people heard a missile go off and they filmed a smoke trail going off. There's a few different photos of it. A missile crashed and exploded near a petrol station, gas station in the south of the city. It did very little damage, as in, it broke some windows in the cafe. This was either, and this is what the locals quite accurate is like. Either this is a SAM surface-to-air missile going off on their own target and then being deactivated, or a missile launched from an aircraft and malfunctioning. I've seen the wreck. I've got a report actually out on this very soon on Monday. The wreckage. Um, shows it's got an NSN number, which means it's US manufactured components in in US national stock list, whether or not it's manufactured is a different matter. The code indicates it's a guided missile. It's uh, clear. It's a opaque nose cone on the missile, which means it's radio frequency guided. And judging from the geometry of it and knowing what's in u.s stock supplied to ukraine it's either an ag80 agm-88 harm anti-radiation missile or an aim seven sparrow um air-to-air missile which are also being used for surface-to-air missile systems in ukraine Ie, it's not a storm shadow and that means it's got quite a small explosive payload or didn't detonate but a storm shadow would have turned that gas station into a crater um and also wouldn't have an nsn number because it all of the parts on it were well, british or French. Um, so what they did is the Russians seized upon this story. For some reason, because their current political excitement around Storm Shadow, and also because I think the UK is kind of a nice perfidious Albion target to go for this, they made it into a Storm Shadow. Plus, it's the Wunderwaffe of the moment. Then that got amplified and built up and you know spread around on Russian state media channels very quickly. There was an obvious deliberate campaign you could see within minutes of it going out on the state channel ukraina.ru which is actually Russia's of war near Russia today it was being tweeted at the exact same time in Indonesian Polish and English um, which is an interesting spread of languages and yeah it was it was just transparently
0: being amped now, do what happened know, later well i was just going to say do we know what the russians fired at the uh, pizza place uh, some
1: of the reports I've seen from Ukrainian side, I've not seen a munition fragment yet, so I'm not saying this as an independent confirmation. I've heard reports it was Iskander's locally, um, two of them. Um, with What happened later, and the reason David Sachs got into this, is an American conspiracy theorist, I've actually worked out his exact identity, I'm not going to disclose it probably because I'm not going to adopt someone, but yeah... Safe to say, he does not work for the US government, despite having a Twitter handle called US uh, Civic Civil, Civil Defense News, US Civil Defense News, um, who also claims to have been a congressional staffer. Again, he's not been. Um, lives in Coronado, California. He.
0: Okay, you've already come this far, mate, and your reporter's. No, come no, far.
1: no, because he's, he's not a person of interest, but he's definitely not a Russian asset. This is the important thing. He's a QAnon believer now what he's done is he's taken several different conspiracy like bits of disinformation one that the target was military two he's married the missile claim earlier in the day several hours before the main strike about the storm shadow turned it into that being a storm shadow he's also taken some other person who was watching flight radar who saw a black hawk flying in Romania and was like, oh, it must be on its way to pick up the casualties from Kramatorsk. This was a Black Hawk that you can see the track. It had already landed when he said this, and its flight track took it out of Bulgaria to Constanta in Romania, which is over 500 miles from Kramatorsk. So, you know, it's, it's near the Ukrainian border, as in Romania is next to Ukraine, but it's the other end of the country, and it landed. So he's married these things together
0: this is a very long way of saying that, that QAnon supporters are not the ablest military analysts. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Well, yeah, to say the least. But what's interesting is that
1: this is a case of something being entirely concocted because it fitted into his. Oh, this is the way QAnon conspiracies work. You take any piece of information that you immer, you alter it to fit into your existing matrix of reality. Your filter, your mesh, and that's, and that's what he just did.
0: Twitter at large, though, that's that's not exclusive to QAnon. No, it's it. Yeah, that's why the two.
1: It's kind of a. It's a cult, but it's a cult that kind of is intrinsically defined by the architecture of social media, um, which is why it, it's awful and it's effect on humanity. Um, but David Sachs then sees this again. This fits into his existing notions, which is like, oh the war is bad, we shouldn't support Ukraine, look at the cost, and immediately amplifies it to 3.4 million people. And unfortunately now this idea, which is completely not grounded in reality on several counts, is widely prevalent.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's also the case that the Russians will, even though this seemed to organically come together by American conspiracy theorists and then very influential Twitter advisory board whatever the hell his job is tech bros even though the russians hadn't necessarily put this together and sold this particular conspiracy theory it behooves them to embrace it in some manner now right because it it, it furthers the agenda of getting western security assistance to stop have you seen the russians cannibalize the SACs and whoever the QAnon guy is their notion
1: no they're not actually the russians are very proud of the strike despite the kids it killed They are um, insisting that it was actually the base of the 56th Mechanized Infantry Brigade, and they killed two generals.
0: So a a pizza parlor being the base of a major military...
1: It was was their point of deployment, was the hotel, and they've killed two Ukrainian generals that they've not named.
0: So they're embracing their own atrocity. So does that suggest, then, that the Russians targeted this uh this location that there wasn't a stray missile that was headed toward a ukrainian military installation
1: if it was iskander yeah they're they're they are precision weapons um like they are they are quite accurate actually they're not you know we're not talking scud or tochka style you know crude ballistic weapons these can be very accurate i've seen them used to you know hit buried gas lines in particular locations and blow them up um yeah, they targeted it. As to why they targeted it, it might be a different matter. There may have been some soldiers staying there or some people of interest, or it may have been, and this is a broader thing, and I can't stress this enough, Russian policy with regards to Ukrainian cities as it was to Syrian cities is to make them unviable. And in f- choosing mass civilian casualties or targeting hospitals, schools, Places where life can go on or people can support life is a strategy. It's not an accident. It's a deliberate policy. Like we're working on, so one of the things we've been doing at CIR is looking at strikes on medical facilities and educational facilities in Kherson since the liberation by Ukrainian armed forces in November 2022. And they have hit, I think, seven different medical facilities multiple times each one.
0: It's exactly, exactly the Russian playbook in Syria. Destroy the hospitals and then destroy the new hospitals that emerge as ad hoc facilities when you've destroyed the first one. So, yeah. Um, I mean, the Russians have expended a lot of energy, particularly, I mean, you and I know this from the, the, the Syria war, uh, into vilifying people who are responsible for gathering evidence and data to verify everything you just said, particularly the white helmets, the rescue workers in Syria. Um, you have a lot of useful idiots, if not Russian agents of influence in the West who have been trying to debunk the claim that Russia is purposefully targeting civilian infrastructure to, as you say, make whole cities uninhabitable or unviable. Do you think that this, that this uh, campaign in Ukraine, which with every passing hour, a new story about the Ukraine war emerges that tends to eclipse uh, the human toll? of this war and it tends to eclipse any investigation into war crimes, et cetera. Do you think that this is getting enough attention in the Western press? Because I mean, that what you just said, I I heard it and I thought logically, well, of course, the Russians are going to do this because this is what they do do. But it's not something that necessarily kind of occupies the, the, the four of my consciousness or even my my daily news feed on on what's happening.
1: I don't know. And it's difficult for me to distance myself that much from it, because obviously I pretty much live in a Ukrainian and a Russian newsfeed. Um, but I mean, I would say I was listening to Radio 4 the other night and on their afternoon program, it was the lead item on the news. So for the Kramatorsk strike, I think it does still get a lot of attention and the Kherson Dam as well did. I think this slow grinding away doesn't so much. But that's also, and you remember this precisely from when we worked on it with both Syria and Ukraine, there's only so many ways you can write the same headline over and over again of like Russia Shells Hospital in marad al or something. Because people, news cycle seeks novelty, and none of this is novel. This is grinding, repetitive, constant degradation of civilian infrastructure. It's really hard to, you know, get eyeballs on that. I think there have been times when it's done, when you're able to present a story that really captures everything from inception through to execution. I think like this, the best ever example of that was the New York Times piece where they got the audio intercepts of the Russian bomber pilots bombing Idlib. Uh, they were correcting their fire, and it was like made completely transparent. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were bombing. It was coordinated and repeated. And then they match that with the footage on the ground. That's that's the kind of level of story you have to get something like this. And it's hard. Like the the scale of the atrocities they committed, especially when you look at where they were in occupation as well. Um, I mean, obviously Butcher got a huge level of attention because the sheer quantity of deaths there. But I've worked, I mean, I did a thing with Associated Press and PBS um, Frontline last year. And that was on a village called Vizhivka. And we were sort of working out and cataloging the sort of summary execution, torture, people just being killed for driving past in their cars and being machine gunned, you know, families with children and stuff. And even after that documentary wrapped up, like weeks later, months later, still finding new cases and, you know, a car found in the wood with a guy shot dead in the, with the driver's seat and stuff, you know, shallow graves dug around. the, yeah, it's a huge, huge scale of violence that's been unleashed on it. And I think it's there's too much to be able to do. Like some of this stuff gets forgotten. Like, uh, Do you remember Kupiansk um, in Kharkiv Oblast, where there's video of a pit and civilians, uh, men and women, their bodies being rolled into it by soldiers who you can just about make out are wearing Russian insignia. Stuff like that sinks into the memory hole because there's just so much of this going on.
0: And I mean, even after the, the majority of the Syrian civil war has wrapped up, we still see evidence come to light from years, if not a decade earlier, suggesting that the full scale of Assad's war crimes is yet to be documented, including how bit- long has
1: the you know the sort of press go to death toll been half a million. I think it was that in twenty fifteen, something like that, people yeah, were saying that.
0: When the UN famously stopped counting around that time. So we don't know. And of course, you know, Assad has been welcomed back into the Arab League. He's normalized ties with any number of Arab dictatorships that have tried to un- unhorse him at one point. He's probably gonna normalize relations with Turkey. And the US, you know, its its sole remit in Syria is to ensure that ISIS remains down and out. Um and I guess now a little bit that Iranian hegemony doesn't have uh room to grow, but yeah, I mean, it's it's this yeah, is- and it's
1: something that European countries get a lot, you know, don't get enough flak for as well. I mean, obviously, you know, the horrific situation for refugees from Syria in Turkey at the mercy of various political factions and their sort of desire to appeal to populist xenophobia is a consequence of the fact that we read, you know, the European Union reached a deal with the Turks in order to trap them there because they didn't want to, you know have accept them into Europe. And also look at places like Denmark, which is the first European country that declared that Damascus was safe and that they could start deporting people back there. That was a few years ago they now I don't actually know if any deportation's actually gone through yet. because They've been fighting you know it's been caught process of fighting it. But that's the government's position. Yeah. Despite the fact that it's very, very well established. I mean also people don't even have homes to go back to because of the bill that was adopted, the law that was adopted, which allowed the government to force majeure and seize homes of people who had not been in them for X amount of time.
0: Right. Well, and, you know, Denmark, I mean, it's it's two sides of the ledger. Denmark has been exceptionally uh, robust on arming Ukraine, emptying the stocks of all their Caesars, French made uh, self-propelled howitzers. They're very hawkish on that war. But that's a war that's not exactly in their backyard, but closer to it than the Middle East, right? So...
1: (laughs) Okay, so it's it was an infuriating point coming from the sort of tank, not from the tanky left so much actually, but from the sort of the sort of uh, pa- the you know like knee Pacific pacifist response of like, oh people care about Ukraine but they don't care about Syria, and especially as most of the people who are working on those conflicts that they were shouting this at on Twitter were people like me, you know, been working, you know, we lost a lot of nights of sleepness and sort of panic to working on Syria for all those years. Um, but it's not entirely ungrounded. And if you look at the um, the treatment of refugees, for example, like the UK for Ukrainians did provide safe legal routes, despite the fact that they also said that, Ukraine, that Syrians were automatically going to receive asylum because you're coming from Syria, therefore you would automatically receive it. But they made no effort whatsoever to enable people to actually get to the UK, which ena- created a huge amount of trouble. Similarly, yeah. And I'd say the same in Denmark and stuff as well. There is a there is a difference in the way they
0: were treated. Absolutely. And, and uh, before the full-scale invasion, when Lukashenko undertook that gambit to import mainly Iraqi refugees to Belarus in order to send them across the border into Poland, he did that with an intent, right? Which is to whip up xenophobic populist sentiment, particularly as espoused by the leading Polish government, um, to have them deported and to, you know, create a crisis in in Warsaw. Uh, however, Poland has been Poland has been quite good on not just providing arms and assistance to Ukraine, but also giving homes to Ukrainian refugees, right? it's It's not so one one type of externally uh, dispossessed is is considered better than another. and and yeah, Syrians will tell you hey, you know, it would have been great if you gave us surface-to-air missiles, much less... Well, yeah,
1: it, it wouldn't exactly be amiss to describe it as racist, as a, like, difference in perceptions. Well, it's... there's, Yeah, it's xenophobia. It's also the you know the idea of our, you know,
0: European versus
1: not. This is our domestic
0: concern. The other argument you'll hear from people who... who, um, I remember having a, a, an argument with a halfway-to-tanky lefty journalist from an online publication that shall not be named who said, uh, uh, you know, Syria never mattered. Um, And I was like, well, what do you mean it never mattered uh, from a humanitarian? He said, well, geopolitically never mattered. You know, the Iran deal was more important than Syria. I said, well, that's interesting because that's kind of exactly what I was saying was one of the leading factors in why the Obama administration was not helping the Syrian revolution was that it was considered inconvenient and a distraction from the almighty geopolitical gambit of getting Tehran to the dotted line on nuclear proliferation. Uh, So to hear you say that, because I had been denigrated as a conspiracy theorist when I was making that case in real time. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, Ukraine as an integral Well, I mean, that was like the
1: Ben Rhodes kind of position that was was stated pretty openly. Exactly,
0: exactly. And Ben Rhodes, who is now kind of imbibing the conventional Democratic Party wisdom that Ukraine must be defended and all the rest of it. Well, that's great. But where were you on this other?
1: Look at the Obama interview from the other day, where, you know, claiming that there was no conflict and it was a bloodless takeover, which is, yeah, um,
0: not something, you know, ask Crimean Tatars about that. Um... Well, then that's another thing, too, that's been not even memory hold, but not even, uh, publicized in the West is all of the atrocities and the, the slow motion, uh, unraveling of cultural and, 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 uh, you know, ethnic patrimony in Crimea among the Tatars, which the Tatars will have told you in 2014, this is exactly what's going to happen based on Russia's history of taking this peninsula. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's,
1: it is interesting actually, yeah, you get certain, how certain things will pick up attention in terms of domestic repressions or, you know, not domestic, but within Russia's, you know, direct territorial control um, versus other ones. And, yeah, like, the the two things that really never picked up attention compared to, like, the repression of liberal protesters or, like, the homophobic legislation were the repression of Crimean Tatars under the guise of combat against Hizbut Taria, which in Russia is regarded as a terrorist organization, different relationship with authorities in Western Europe, um, and also the jehovah's witnesses um which were regarded as a cult by the russians and a huge number of arrests and trials and prosecutions of them as well regardless of whether you know whether or not one has particular you know regarded as a cult or not the treatment of them is strikingly sort of aggressive and authoritarian or based on people's religious preferences um and yeah Crimea there's it's not just the prosecutions as well i mean very quickly after the occupation a number of people young Tata men who would be sort of abducted by the police or guys in sort of camo uniform and then found having hanged themselves a while later with signs of torture in abandoned buildings. Um, yeah, quite a few cases of that. And things like the Crimean Tatar Library being shut down, the dispensation of the midgets, the representative will, you know body, yeah, complete and utter sort of subjugation of it as a community.
0: But still you'll have correct thinking people tell you that Crimea is, if it had a, an actual choice to make, would, be, would prefer to remain in Russian hands than in Ukrainian hands.
1: Um, I mean, this is, this is also where. It is. So okay, maybe there is a chance that under some you know completely free referendum which did not happen, but under a completely free referendum, you know, the Crimean Tata population is about 25 percent of it, there is a good chance that there could have been a plurality for Russian statehood. But that's not the circumstances of what happened. Therefore, we can't base anything on that referendum. The you know twenty-five percent of the population effectively boycotted it. It was held under, with no international oversight. It was at the point of a gun, and all of the electoral monitors they got in were a bunch of European neo Nazis.
0: Well, and um, you know, I mean, look, if we're speaking in those kind of hypotheticals, I you mean, know, when Ukraine had its vote for independence in nineteen ninety-one, was it like fifty-two, fifty to fifty-four percent in Crimea voted in favor? Yeah. And also, I mean, uh, you know, under the Trump presidency, I could well imagine a plebiscite held in New York or California, which would have <laughs> shown a plurality of, of residents in those two states, bluest of blue states, advocating for secession from the union while this guy was in, you know, it, it, yeah, you know in the White but House, no, and I bet was, no one wanted to, 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 to live in a securitized yeah, like prison and under the leadership
1: of a guy who was known locally as Goblin for his life, ties to organized crime for years
0: exactly. Well anyway, um I think my my remit for foreign office of having offline conversations go online has um overtaken us a bit and we're we're running out of time. But anyway, um Pierre, always a pleasure, my friend, and uh you know, thank you for this is kind of went even more panoramic than I had anticipated, but I'm glad, you know, one of the things I've I I you know made me realize I've been lacking is is really kind of excavating the uh the atrocities and carnage of this campaign. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something I choose to want to spend a lot of time doing, probably for my own reasons of PTSD, having done so much of it in Syria. But it is important. And I'm glad that somebody like you is on the case. And where can we find you're at work and you're, I mean, I assume you're doing a report now on Kramatorsk, you mentioned, uh, which will come out this following week, which is the week actually this episode will air. So, um.
1: so yeah, I mean, I, anything I publish, I'll put out on my, my Twitter is Pierre Vaux. Um, so you should spell it he, because don't assume people Piper India Echo, Frankofer. Romeo, Romeo Echo, Victor Alpha, Uniform X ray, actually, uh, uh, on, on Twitter. Um, and my. Sort of the organizational work with Center for Information Resilience. Um, that's we have we publish reports on that. So the, I, I'll tweet links to that. We've also got a website which is eyesonrussia.org, which is not a situation map. Just want to make that clear. It's not real-time situation mapping. It's not projections, but it's an interactive database and map of every verified incident and piece of video or photo evidence that we've gathered in the course of the war. Um, categorized into sort of military movements, destruction, war crimes, et cetera, um, for users to go through. So I, that's that's going to be the sort of, and that's something that's fed in from multiple parts. So Bellingcat um, share, share our database and they feed information into it. Some of our other partners in Ukraine do so as well. So it's a completely verified open source resource to sort of keep track of the history of the war, but it's because it's got a huge amount of verification of what's going on it's got it takes time to do that so it's always a few weeks behind the curve of the war
0: all right well thanks so much for uh, for joining us this week uh this is foreign office i'm michael weiss director of special investigations at the free russia foundation and senior correspondent at yahoo news <laughs> My guest has been Pierre Vaux. He is a researcher into uh, Russian war crimes in Ukraine, among other things, and he works for the UK-based Center for Information Resiliency. Is that correct? Resiliency? Yes. Yes. Uh, thanks very much, and we'll see you next week.